Let's turn now to the book of Matthew in chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and we'll read verses 20 through 28. Jesus, we recall, is giving much instruction on discipleship. He's about to enter into Jerusalem for the last time in the week of his passion, and there and from there to be delivered to men and to God himself for atonement for sin. Matthew 20 Verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he, that's Jesus, said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine, that's James and John, by the way, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, I, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. When the ten heard it, the other disciples, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant." And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Thus far we read the word of God in Matthew 20. And as we continue in the narratives of Jesus instructing his disciples, we ought to be impressed by the amazing patience of Jesus with such slow-learning disciples. Aren't you impressed by that? Here's some examples. To Jesus teaching on the sanctity of marriage, the disciples ponder, because now Jesus has said there's no loopholes. Who then should marry? They go to an extreme conclusion, and they consider that this is an impossible situation. And then another example is when Jesus would receive and bless children of covenant parents, the disciples would turn them away. Jesus would bless, the disciples would turn away whom Jesus would bless. Then this, hearing Jesus set the bar so high for an outwardly righteous young ruler, so high that this ruler could not jump over that bar, the disciples asked, who then could be saved? obviously not knowing that with God all things are possible. But now, now, and most recently, the three great mighty men, if we can call them that, of the disciples, a coterie, a close group of those of, uh, for whom Jesus had special affection, 
They show their weakness. Peter, for example, in this whole string of instruction, boasts that the twelve have left all and followed Jesus. And then he asks this of Jesus, what's in it for them? What's in it for us? And now the other two of the three, sons of thunder, James and John, they ask with their mother for preferment above all others at the right and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. You would think that Jesus would have enough of this. These people aren't getting it. These disciples whom he had enrolled in the school by his calling, he had enrolled in his own school of discipleship. They show themselves nothing better than others who are slow learners. Surely Jesus, if he would establish anything and have a successful anything among men, ought to have people who are, who are quick studies, were able to follow and to grasp the things of Jesus and the kingdom, especially at this late in the game, as it were, of the instruction of the disciples on the way to Golgotha. Surely he would have others, better students, sit at his feet in the charter school of the apostles and the church. But Jesus is patient. Amazing. Jesus is very patient with these disciples. Now James and John, we should know Mark has asking for the preferment, not their mother as Matthew, but the disciples themselves. So they're with the mother. There's no contradiction. But he deals patiently with these and also with the other disciples who react badly, we should say, who are greatly displeased with the arrogance and audacity of these two disciples who seek the honor. But now, <clears throat> this is too for us, and we should know that. And I hope that you're not impatient with Jesus or with the disciples here, because there's something here for us. This is the word of God. We're slow learners. And remarkably, we have no excuse that the disciples have. We have the great teacher aid, the divine teacher aid, the helper in teaching of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. We have the New Testament, the entire Bible that he inspired. It was not yet inspired at the time that the disciples were following Jesus. We have such help, but how much do we lack in our understanding of what it is to serve instead of to be served? Isn't that our problem isn't that the problems of so many problems in the church, the beginning of it all, people preferring this, preferring that, and to be concrete, preferring their opinions versus these opinions, and riding with it all the way out the church. And so we need instruction here. In the great school of this virtue, here's the virtue that we need to have in this school of Jesus the school of service. The virtue is humility. The virtue is selflessness. The virtue needs to be given. May God give it to us as we hear the instruction of Jesus in the service of the Son of Man and also disciples, which instruction is for slow learners like you and like I am. The disciples show their need. 
as sinners of just who is teaching them. They need Jesus, who reveals himself here as a servant of Jehovah, a servant of men, a servant who will suffer and die and give his ransom, a life for, uh, ransom for many. This request of Salome and her sons, and that's Mark 10, her sons join in the request, they're all together, that might at first be understandable, even excusable in a way. For you think about Jesus' instruction in Matthew 19 and verse 28. There, Jesus has taught about the great reward for those who are following him, that they might sit on 12 thrones, Matthew 19, 28, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's just expounded that to them. There's a great reward that waits them in heaven as his apostles. And so you might think it a natural thing that Salome, the mother of these James and John, outstanding in the church, would uh, seek their preferment in thinking that Jesus' death and resurrection are imminent. They're just about to happen, and that was the case. Uh, it might be natural to expect that some would step forward with a request that might have been on the minds of the other disciples. Salome herself, James and John's mother, in the second place, and this we might say is a, an understandable reason why she would go to Jesus, Salome herself might have been closely related to Jesus. There's two theories gained from the crucifixion narratives and the this, the, uh, the, relative, the uh, relating of the women who attended Jesus at his death before and after, there are indications that Mary was related or Salome was related to Mary. Some say Salome was the sister of, of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus now. Now that would make her the aunt of Jesus and James and John cousins of Jesus. Others prefer to call Salome the sister of Joseph, Jesus' stepfather. And in either case, you have Salome here simply engaging what has been practiced history long, still is today, in what's called nepotism. That is, the asking favor of relatives who might be in a high place that you or someone you know can get in a high place or a similar place as a reward for simply being of the flesh and blood of these people. So, as we say, it's not what you know, but who you know, and especially when you're related to them. Isn't this the case in a lot of politics, a lot of churches, I suppose, and other things where there's relatives involved? So it might be understandable. And then this, too, let's not be so hard on Salome, the mother, and James and John, and the disciples, they didn't yet have the spirit poured out in their hearts, of which we saw was the case in the Acts Church, the, the book of Acts Church, post-crucifixion, uh, resurrection, and Pentecost. They didn't have, therefore, the writing of the New Testament, the writing of the law upon their hearts. They didn't know the, the new covenant way. They didn't know about this Jesus as the Holy Spirit alone could teach them of his person and work and the gospel and the grace 
in the kingdom of Jesus. They couldn't know that near as much as we do. All these things make it somewhat understandable. I say somewhat. But at bottom, we need to see this as sin. No mistake about it. And the sin is the exact opposite of what Jesus was looking for, of course, among his disciples, the sin of pride. Pride on Salome's part, pride on the part of James and John, seeking to be great and first to have the preeminence among all the other disciples. That's why the lesson later on about what you should do if you want to be great in the kingdom, excuse me, or first in the kingdom. Pride has no place in the kingdom of heaven. And this, at the same time, that one would elevate himself or herself, shows a contempt of others, a uh, looking down the nose at them. And this is exactly how the other disciples took it. They must have heard this request, gotten to them somehow, And that fomented division and anger. They were terribly displeased. There was a ruckus being caused, and if Jesus hadn't put out the fire, a great conflagration would have erupted, and the congregation of disciples would have been divided irreparably. And thus, the sin sin right before them was that the learners... We're shifting the focus from the teacher and the sinners were shifting focus from the Savior onto themselves. That's what sin all is, always is. A shift from God and every word that he says and the word Jesus to myself, to the Trinity of me, myself, and I. This also reveals the sin of ignorance. That's a sin. There's a misunderstanding here of the nature of discipleship. There's a misunderstanding of the cross as of, of Christ as what he needs to die on if anyone's going to enter the kingdom, and of the necessity of their bearing their own cross if they would receive the, ward of, the reward of grace through faith. So, They're missing something. They're going right for the glory. Oh, they are. And they're missing the way to glory, the suffering of Christ, and their own suffering, if they would be true disciples. So they have a zeal. Oh, they they have a zeal. And we should not um, uh, miss the possibility that they might have something good in their motives besides pride. After all, they're... They're thinking it an honor to be at the right hand and left hand of Jesus. That, mean, that would mean in similar places of power. But at least Jesus is in the middle. And Jesus has it all. And he's the one who is the preeminent one in their thinking. And they're honoring him because they're thinking that he could give them that position because they were believing in him at least somewhat. But after all, this is not with knowledge the knowledge that they need of God and sin and of themselves and of grace. In fact, as one commentator has quipped, these ones, James and John, know not what they ask. And when Jesus asked them a question, are you able to drink the cup I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism I am to be baptized with? When he asked them that question, they know not what they answer. 
They're not knowing the right questions. They're not knowing the right answers. Just about the state of human beings all over the map. And human beings all over the map in the church all over the map. So these men are sinners, oh yes, to be sure, and their mother and the rest of the twelve will respond indignantly to the audacious request. And by the way, those disciples were so, they think, righteously indignant at this request, this effrontery of two. We're not angry, probably, because they had never thought of the same honor for themselves. Peter had just said before, what's in it for us? And perhaps their main uh, being ticked off at this time was because James and John had beaten them to it. We don't know. But they all show in one way or another, as they have all along here, that they are just the sinners that Jesus himself came for. You would agree. We must agree on that. Jesus reveals this here very gently, very wisely, knowing they're not quite ready to hear all this. He just said, I'm going to suffer and die, rise again. They miss that. Now they miss another opportunity to learn at him. But he teach, learn from him, but, but he's going to teach them some more. He says three things about his coming. And this is what Christmas is all about, children. Why did Jesus, why was he born in Bethlehem? Well, he came, first of all, to serve. And this is what he says. Jesus says to them, I'm missing where this is here. The Son of Man has come to serve. That's his point here. The Son of Man did not come to be served, verse 28, excuse me. Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the lesson here that they got to learn. Be as the Son of Man. But remember, there's a Son of Man who came to do something you couldn't. He came to serve as the fathers in all eternity, as the servant of servants of the salvation of the people of God's good pleasure. Jesus reveals here in this amazing, almighty text that he's the servant that God had ever had in mind, the servant who will give his life a ransom for many. I'm speaking here of the fact that Jesus is speaking to them of the fact that he is the servant of the Lord of whom Isaiah speaks. Isaiah chapter 42, for example. There are many servant of the Lord passages here that speak of Jacob and Israel as servants, but especially focus on the Christ as the servant of Jehovah's covenant. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, 
and the coast lands shall wait for his law. This is the servant Jesus Christ, who says, of whom it's said later on, that he will be as a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Jesus comes as this servant Messiah. I have come not to be served, not to get some kind of merely personal honor for myself, but I'm come to serve the Father to save the elect of God. That leads to this. He came to suffer. You want to know what Christmas is all about? The cuddly babe in Bethlehem's manger? He is born to die. He is born and he intentionally comes into this earth to suffer and to die. He's the man of sorrows even before he's a man, that is, as a babe, the man of sorrows of whom the prophet speaks as well. He comes to serve in the way of suffering, to drink a cup of suffering, that's what he alludes to here, given to him of the Father, that is, to experience the suffering that God has ordained for him at the hands of men not only, but the hands of the Father who will vent his wrath on the one who comes to bear the sin of many. He will experience the pain and anguish of the crucifixion. He will drain the cup, drink the dregs. He asks in the garden later on, just four nights hence, the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It's such an awesome, daunting future ahead of him, this drinking of the cup of the wrath of God. He can hardly take it in his humanity. He's not resisting the will of God here, but the pain of being an outcast who loves the Father and whom the Father loves. This is almost the limits of the endurance of Jesus in his humanity, to endure that hell reserved for sinners. And yet he says, there's a cup he has. This cup is also symbolized or mentioned as a baptism. They're very closely related, the drinking of the cup and the baptism that he will be baptized with. This is the initiation symbolized by the water of baptism as a sacred submersion symbolizing his now completely taken into the cause of God's covenant for the sake of representing the salvation of God and accomplishing it. It's given that formal testimony here of covenantal right, showing that he is of God, he is of God's part. He came to suffer, and it's not a mistake. It's not merely at the hands of men. It's a divine thing. It's a mission of God thing. And then he came and he comes to suffer, to pay the ransom price, as he says, to ransom, give his life a ransom for many. Here Jesus uses a word that's used nowhere else in the New Testament, payment of a price. It's the payment 
that was used, the word lutron, for the purchase of slaves. Jesus comes to set the prisoners free, the prisoners in the prison house of sin, in the slavery of sin, the guilt and the bondage of sin and the death of sin in that cell, that dark, damp cell where there is no life, there is no freedom, there is no ability, desire to serve God. Someone must set the captives free, and this has to be a ransom price, not paid to the devil. He's worth no honor such as that, but to the Father. And so the Father, who set the price, and the price is the blood of the Lamb, nothing less will do, is paid that price by the death of Jesus' blood. As Peter says, the precious blood of the Lamb worth more than gold and silver. Commentators are pretty much agreed that this reference here of Jesus, that he would give his life a ransom for many, in the behalf of many, anti is the preposition, in the place of many, not just for their good, but in their place as a substitute, not just as an example. Commentators are agreed, I say, that this is probably an allusion to Isaiah. And not just 43, the servant of the Lord passage, but Isaiah 53, the Lamb of God passage. Note, Isaiah 53, 2 and following. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And then... All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And finally, praise the Lord to bruise him. Verse 10, he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for his sin. And finally, the last verse, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Marvelous, almighty text, the atonement of the Savior. This is what Jesus says here. And he uses this in the occasion to instruct the disciples on their own service. This is a remarkable way that Jesus has of teaching here the things of heaven. He sets himself as the one who dies for sin, but who also came to be an example. And this will be the pattern that the disciples must follow. The servants are come to be servants, just as the Son of Man, verse 28, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
a ransom for many. You hear that? This is what discipleship is all about. What is a servant or a slave as is used? Uh, In verse 27, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Shackled. Servant, that's the word from which we get deacon. Diakonos. Diakonos, doulos. Two words to describe people who are in the control of others, either willingly or unwillingly, but whose main concern is not themselves. That's the idea of a servant or of a slave. Whose main concern is the work of another, the calling to represent another. If you're at an office, as an official, that's what really anyone who works in an office is, an official, you represent the guy who owns the office or the company that owns the office. You don't do your work, even if it's at home, um, for yourself, surfing the Internet when you should be working for the guy who owns the office or the company that owns the office. So much in the kingdom of heaven is this like this, that we are come to come as Luther, who are captive to the word, who stand on the word of God, captive as slaves to the word, as the Apostle Paul describes himself in many of the introductions to his epistles. I am a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ, he says. And because I'm that, hear me, but not me, God through me, and hear my words, not mine, but God's through me as if your life depended upon it and your instruction in righteousness needed it desperately. Just as Christ, we come and we're not here to be served. That's the attitude of those who come to church and say, I didn't get anything out of it. When the gospel was preached by an ordinary man, but the powerful gospel was preached, they said, I didn't get anything on it. They should be saying, and this is the truth of it, they never gave anything to it. They never gave their ears to hear what God would do through the miracle of the preaching of the word of God. Jesus said to the disciples, look at them here. Look at them here. Self-serving. Seeking their honor. He said of the disciples to Jesus, those who hear you, hear me. (coughs) And he says that today. Those who hear ordained pastors, preachers, hear Jesus. The miracle of preaching. Faith comes that way. Things invisible are established like the kingdom in hearts that comes that way, that's established that way. Sinners are brought to tears of repentance and to faith. And the preacher says, repent and believe. The discomforted are brought to comfort, the only comfort in life and death. When the pastor holds out to them the truth, Jesus Jesus is our peace, and he forgives the worst of sinners. But we're just servants, that's all. 
Paul says, I'm an earthen vessel, but I have a treasure inside. And that's what all the apostles were, and that's what every minister of the word is. So it's not about self, but it's about God. We're serving God, and we're serving others. Maybe that's the hard thing, we think. Serving God is one thing, but serving others, especially when the others is not just mankind. I serve mankind, as the comic strip says. How shameful. But it's people that I have trouble serving and loving. Mankind in general, yes, there's the theory. I love the Israelis. I love the Palestinians too. You can say that, right? And Hamas. And the guy that tries to break into your house. Really? Shoot, then think later, I suppose. It's what we all think about. The innate desire to survive comes in. Worse, the innate pride to be above, if others serve you, that always is there. Servants, to suffer. Now, here we have some Intriguing words of Jesus. Salome and the two disciples, James and John, with her, they ask, grant that these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand, one of them, and the other on your left in your kingdom. Mark is even more drastic and outlandish. For it says there that the two disciples... Where is that? Oh... The two disciples, James and John, sons of Demony, verse 35, they came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's what they said there. And it turns out whatever they wanted to get from him, it was the same thing that Matthew records. Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. So they're asking for the same thing, but they they preface the, the whole conversation with Jesus as kind of an insistence that, He would grant them whatever they ask. Isn't that amazing? And so Jesus, right away, says, you don't know what you're asking. That's the first thing he says. And then asks them rather rhetorically, not thinking they, they would dare to say yes to this. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And look what they said to him right away. It's a quick answer. That's a scary answer. Quick answer to such a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with a baptism that I'm baptized with? Are you able to die on the cross for sins? Are you able to go to hell and live? That's what he's talking about here. And they say, sure. Wow. But then Jesus says, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. That's what he says. 
But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not for me to give, mine to give, but it's for those for whom it's prepared by my Father. Now, Jesus at this point, and I'm going to leave with it after I make a couple of comments here. When he says to sit on my right hand and on my left, it's not mine to give, but it's for those whom it's prepared for my Father. Jesus shifts the focus from himself whom the disciples are thinking, a mere man who meets out rewards in an earthly kingdom, to his father in heaven, just like he did to the rich young ruler who said, good master, he said, why do you call me good? There's none good but one that is God. And Jesus is not saying there, I'm not God and I'm not good, nor is he saying here that I'm not the judge and through me God's going to give rewards out in places of honor in the kingdom. Oh, he is the judge, all right. But he wants these people to deal with God in Jesus and not just Jesus, who's one of their buddies, their cronies, and maybe their cousin. And that's all he says about the glory part. But he says other things about the suffering part that is for the instruction of these disciples and us for the rest of this sermon. We said that just as Jesus came to serve and not to be served, that's what we're to do. But Jesus says here, we're also to suffer, and even with a suffering that's drinking his own cup, you will indeed drink my cup, verse 23, and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. What's he talking about here? Clearly, the cup he drinks is the cupping of the, the cup of the suffering, the wrath of God, and all of the other ignominy, the, the base reproach that's heaped upon him by men. And clearly, that's the same as his baptism, this inauguration into these hellish agonies and so on. How can it be that Jesus says, You're right? You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. Well, we know this. It's just as Jesus says. Now we have to understand it. And the first thing it cannot be is that these disciples, James and John and whoever, will atone for sin. That they will suffer the wrath of God. That's Jesus alone. Jesus has made sin for us that we might be the made, he might be made the righteousness of God for us and we might be righteous in him. There's nothing we can do to atone for sin. We're the sinners who need atonement. So what does it mean? Oh, beloved, I find here profound instruction on the profound instruction elsewhere that the Bible says that we are participants in Jesus' death and in his life. Jesus, who is our representative, dies for us, and in his dying for us, and then is giving us faith to join us to him, gives us to participate somehow in his own crucifixion and then in his own resurrection. So as Paul says, as Jesus died to sin, so we by faith die to sin It has no more staying, domineering, enslaving power over us. And we suffer for that participation in Jesus' crucifixion. 
We suffer for that. We suffer the loss of our self. Our self is crucified. The world crucifies us as well. You belong to Jesus. Away with you. Up on a cross. Paul says that in Galatians 6, 14. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. There's a double crucifixion because of the crucifixion of the one. We hate the world. We put it up on a cross. It hates us. It puts us up on a cross. There's this mutual antagonism, unfriendliness, enmity between those on the side of God and those not. There's a beauty to this. Jesus saying, you're going to drink my cup, you will, and be baptized with my baptism. You're going to be a participant in that. And by this, you're going to show that my death is worth dying for. My life is worth living for. I am the Savior. That's what the idea, and James, in fact, did do that. He was the first martyr. Acts 12, verse 2. First martyr was John, or uh, James. John was the one apostle of whom we don't know that he died as a martyr. We do know, however, that he was exiled to the, uh, the Isle of Patmos off the shores of Asia Minor, where he received the revelation that we know as the book of Revelation. But there he was suffering for the tribulation in Jesus, he says in Revelation 1, verse 9. Now this is a text, or this is a concept, beloved, that's deep, very deep, but it's, the, it's at the, the heart of what our life is all about. Romans 8, 17 speaks of it too. If children, then you're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Suffer with him. Participate in the cup he drinks, in the baptism he's baptized with. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. We're always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. Now speaking, he is specifically there of apostles. But go on to Philippians 3 and verse 10. You read this. That I may know him, Paul's desire is that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, no glory except through the fellowship of the sufferings of the Son of God. That's Paul's desire. That's the desire of every one of us and the understanding that we have as Christians. Two other places, Colossians 1, verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. 
There's something lacking. Christ's death for atonement is the singular death, the one for, for once for all death. Hebrews makes that clear. But there's something of the participants in the death that has to be brought out as well. Jesus shows the power of his atoning blood and the redemption that is accomplished there on the cross. But 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Dear flock, you are blessed indeed. Drinking the cup is never easy. Being a Christian is never easy. It's this way of following the Lamb wherever he goes via the cross. So we are servants like he are. We suffer in some capacity as members of his body. We don't atone, but that's a powerful thing. And I want to submit to you that the reason for the weakness of the, evangel the evangelical church is the, the fact that we are all for being disciples of Jesus in our confession and in our life, except when it comes to suffering. We want something, as we'll see presently, of glory like now and a quick Christianity and a quick success. And that's what James and John represent. The tendency of us all is want the glory. Want the glory. But when we suffer with Christ, this is powerful. It's not atoning, but it's a powerful way to show forth the praises of the Son of Man who's worth living for and dying for. You know, if a religion is not worth living for, it's not worth dying for. If it's not worth dying for, it's not worth living for. What about your religion and your Redeemer you say is Jesus? Is he worth living for and dying for and dying for and living for? And Jesus here, you see, is hammering home the message of who he is and what it is to be like him and to follow him. And he says, now, you learn this from me, and it's the exact opposite of what you learn from the heathen. Verse 25, Jesus calls the disciples to himself and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who are great among the Gentiles exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. You know, beloved, no one would think of ever putting a slave in Roman times, in Greek times, in charge of anybody that is of any worth 
in any position of worth. Slaves were the offscouring of the world. Not as the Gentiles. They want the power and the powerful to be in charge. We are to have the exact opposite attitude and motive. We're to serve God for his glory. So there's needed instruction here. And we need that too, beloved. I love the words that Jesus says in verse 25. You have these disciples with their mother. And here they are with all kinds of mixed motives and it's, it's bad news. We want to be with you, Jesus. We want in on this kingdom that you're establishing. We're investing here. We want to be triple partners. That's basically what they're saying. And the disciples are incensed for whatever reason. <laughs> there, is a, there is a church split coming. Pride is at the bottom of it, of course it is. Jesus won't have it. Look what he does in verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself. And I think he was calling the whole lot of them, all the disciples, to himself. And then he instructed them. He didn't say, get out of here, I've had it. Class dismissed. You haven't learned this lesson of discipleship up to now, and you're never going to learn it. I give up. I'm going somewhere else. Maybe I'm going to another planet. There are people who are naturally righteous. Somebody ready for me. I never was ready for the new math that they introduced in the ninth grade. But how can anybody be ready for the new gospel, really? He's turning everything upside down. And we would be frustrated. New doesn't meet old very well. Old school, new school, they don't go well. Old thoughts, old habits, old ways, old paths of sinners, they don't meet well with a Savior from heaven who's righteous and who says, here's the way. The only way, I'm the way, follow me, and it will be for your death. And you're being despised. So we find grace here. He doesn't say, get away from me. He says, you come here now. You come here. You stay after, you stay in. No recess for you. You've got to learn some more. He's being incredibly serious here. The disciples needed to learn here what we all need to learn. When he says, if you're going to be great, let him be your servant. Anybody who's going to be great, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just like me. What Jesus is doing is very humbly, humbly, wisely, turning them from themselves 
It's always a good thing from our pettiness and our pride to himself. To himself. We're led to lovely thoughts of Jesus here. To great thoughts. And to ask the question, just how preeminent can one be? Here we are, we thought we were great. James and John and Peter too. And then the rest. But Jesus is showing very quietly and meekly, I'm the great one here. I'm the great one. And they needed to learn what's it great, what's to be great and first in the kingdom, and that this is only through bearing the cross, his bearing the cross, and then our denying ourselves, and that we're going to learn these things in the doing, that is in the suffering. But the disciples are very slow. Do you know, as Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 24 and following, that it was at the Last Supper, as we say, the First Supper, the First Lord's Supper, Luke 22, 24 and following, disciples are found disputing among themselves. This is Thursday night, four or five nights or a week or so from where Jesus is teaching now. They're disputing among themselves as to which of them should be considered the greatest. They still got it in their heads. Those slow learners. What do you think? Is it me? Is it you? Church today has the same slow learning nature, doesn't it? Wrong view of success. We've learned it from the ecumeniacs, from the health and wealth gospel people, all the people were powerhouses and seminaries, and they're smart, I tell you. And they can flip sermons out, write them out, and wow, a thousand ways to feel good about yourselves. If you have a problem, just press the delete button, they'll say. They're up to, they're up to snuff. Take control of your life. Of course, there's always a grain of salt in this, a grain of truth in this, excuse me. But at bottom, there's a wrong view of what the kingdom looks like. Gentiles' kingdom looks like this. Mars looks like this. But they're not in the same plane. They have great men at the top. We have a great God at the top. We, we preach Christ crucified and they preach man exalted in one way or another. This is not just me trying to find filler and to criticize the others so that you stick around a while because we, we think we're better than others. No, it's just the fact. And here it is. It's proven. These disciples, they don't get it. And I fear that the church has learned quite well what it is to be power-mongering, power-grabbing, and to gauge success by influence over people and policies and city hall. 
embedded in the church's officers, her preaching, her programs, her policies, her membership is this pride in man. But how about us? Are we humble? Remember I said, the scripture backs me up and Jesus does. The greatest virtue of the kingdom of heaven and God's people is humility. It means you're just like the dust. And you know that you cannot add anything to God. Are you happy being humble? Just being humble. Even bleeding. Happy in your self-denying service and Christ-exalting, Christ-alone-exalting preaching and in hearing just Christ and then doing. We're not the minister, but God tells you because you've heard it through the word of God that he ministers and serves and is captive to. I hope you're glad about this service, beloved. The Savior shows grace he calls us to himself. And he would give special grace for special needs students. That's you, and that's who I am. He might not give you an A, a great honor to sit at his right hand, or even a participation certificate because you've showed up. But after all, Christ grades not on the curve, but on the cross. You said this before. And rewards such as he gives are of grace and grace alone. And till then, beloved, I'd urge you, think on the reward to be sure. Jesus himself did. For the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. But think, first of all, right now, on the service and the call and the privilege to suffer for his sake. Is that, beloved, enough for you? Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless us with humility and give us faith, Lord, too. Because as we're not thinking much of ourselves, we long to think much of you. For this we need faith. We need to look through all the stuff, Lord, all the people and all the Christ that are being presented as ways to salvation, as teachers to listen to, whose hopes we should have. Give us faith in you. Give this congregation faith in you. This servant, yours truly, faith in you with humility. And may we have the faith that does Christianity. Doesn't just say it, but serves. Serves each other. Serves the living God. What a privilege. Hear now our prayers and our praise, Lord. In the name of your blessed Son, Jesus. Amen.